as we're as we're coming back in. One of them is uh, I had left uh, some small flyers out for a uh, online course with Heidi Bourne, who often uh, comes here. She's based in Mendocino County, and she's doing a uh, online course called Summer of Love. And it's, uh, I think, six weeks. It's on the different qualities of the kind heart. So it'll probably be loving kindness, compassion, empathy, generosity, and so forth. And she, she's been here. Those of you who come regularly know she's quite good. So you might look at that. And then um, my colleague, Oren Sofer, is teaching a retreat in uh, mid-September in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, Insight Meditation. If you're looking for a five-day retreat, this is with Matthew Brensilver. And so both very good teachers. So I, I think I ran out of flyers. So I don't have them on the table, but I have one here if you're interested and you want to take a look. Okay. Did you see the dates on that one? September 19th to 23rd, sorry. Yeah. They're ready, Bill. Okay. We're in the middle of a series of talks that I've been given, which I think actually came out of an earlier series on the stages of the spiritual path. And this is a, a series looking at the nature of the ordinary conditioned mind, heart, and body and looking specifically at a number of the different parameters of our ordinary conditioning. And so we've looked already, I think this is the fourth of, the, of 10 parameters that I identified. There probably could be 100 or 20 or whatever. And we've already looked at what is the nature of our ordinary conditioned thinking? What is the nature of our ordinary conditioned we might say heart or the emotional life. What's the ordinary conditioning around the body? And some of this is more universal conditioning. A lot of it is cultural conditioning and really looking at these. And in the series, we're really looking at, at um, three aspects. What's the ordinary conditioning? What, as far as we can tell, is along uh, in terms of that a given parameter what does the mind and heart and body of the Buddha look like? Or an awakened being? You know, so what, uh, what is the awakened heart? What is the awakening around the body or around the way the thinking mind works? So first, looking at the conditioning. Secondly, looking at what a more awakened way of being in that parameter would look like. And then thirdly, the key question, how do we get there? <laughs> Right, or how do we practice so as to move, as it were, from A to B, from move from the ordinary conditioning to more awakened qualities? The parameter we've been looking at now, this I think will be the third week, is the, the, the conditioned nature of the self, which conceptually is trickier than what we've looked at so far. And two times ago, I looked into some of the ways that we understand the self, which is, which is conceptually complicated if we want to unpack it that way. And what I have found useful in teaching is to be more practically based and to point to two main ways that we can practice with a sense of self. Uh, one of them is to look for where the self appears to be thick or big or is a you know, strong sense of self, which can be there when we're self-conscious, when there's a strong self-image, when the mind is reactive, when there is a sense of there being a wounded part of myself, and so forth, right? 
And we, we want to look at those areas. In some cases, when we find that sense of self as thick, for example, when there's a wound that might be deve- uh, connected with developmental issues or with some way we've been wounded from the culture, then that's calling for healing, right? And so what we do with the thick self can vary. Sometimes we want to look at it and see if we can let go of some habit, right? Or some, some stuff we can let go of, some calls for healing. So it's, it's um, complicated in some ways, not, not an easy, but not an easy, obvious solution all the time. But this first way of practicing, we initially just look for where the self is thick. And the second way of practicing is to find ways to thin out the self. And this is this can be done both in meditation and in uh, daily life. And so, I you know traditionally the main way that the the Buddha taught in this area, you know, in his the sense of self that he was pointing to, twenty six hundred years ago in what's now India. <clears throat> India was quite different from the sense of the self in 21st century U.S., right? A different sense of self, right? Uh, I was on BART yesterday, and uh, 80 or 90% of the people I saw on BART, their sense of self involved looking at something like about eight inches away, right? So what is, you know, so some new sense of self is evolving, right? You know, and the science fiction writers have speculated about cyborgs and so forth. But anyway, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> okay, so um, so the Buddha pointed to a way of practicing more to thin out the self. So, so the, my practical guidance is, number one, look for where the self is thick. Study it. You know, respond in different ways. Sometimes, again, we might think, I have a really, you know, strong self-image there, maybe I can let go of that or see what's beneath it, right? So sometimes it's letting go, sometimes it's more investigation, sometimes it's healing, and so forth. And so the Buddha's guidance to work with the thinning out of the self was very similar to what our basic meditation instruction is, which is, can I just be with the flow of experience and essentially not take it personally? (laughs) Can I just be with a thought and notice as a a thought without latching on? Notice it as planning. Okay, planning. Okay, let go, back to the breath. Can I be with irritation without getting totally wrapped up in the story and getting locked into it for the next 20 minutes, right? And again, there are different ways to respond. You know, sometimes it's to let go. Sometimes it's to investigate. Sometimes it's to bring in compassion. So it's, there are multiple ways we respond. But the core teaching of the Buddha was more simple. It was just to learn to be with the flow of experience, much as almost a, as if we were watching a river come by in front of us and noticing what's right there in the river. So, and then we also talked about how we can bring that, another way to thin out, I connected with the, uh, uh, the concept of flow, which is, and pointing to the way that for a lot of us, we're already actually living, especially with activities that are very familiar to us, or maybe when we're with people most close to us, that there's a kind of a flow experience where there's not much sense of self. You know, in the, uh, the flow experience, you can find it often with music or dance or art or being with people close to you. You're just fully there. There's very little sense of self. You can find it in sports and, and so forth. In sports, it's called being in the zone. Right? And you can find it in all these places. And it's, it's a very good entree to being with a thinned out sense of self. And it's something we can practice. We could say, I'm going to try to be with the flow, with the dishes, you know, or walking, or being in the mountains or whatever. So that's some of what we covered. So what we started last week, I want to continue with, and this is looking at one manifestation 
of what we might call a thick self. And part of our ordinary conditioning, looking at that in some depth, and this is what I have called the doer. One way that our self gets thick is in being a doer, so to speak. <laughs> being a doer. So we played with, we played with the, the being or doing, right? You know, we, you know, we sometimes we, people sometimes say in our culture, we're more of a human doing than a human being, right? <laughs> and so I want to look at this sense of the doer because I think it's very deep and a lot of it's very subtle. And so what we'll do, again, we'll look in more depth than we did last time. And I'll look at the, some of the ways that this sense of the doer manifests. Some of, some of the uh, very strong cultural conditioning around the doer, which is very interesting. And we can see that very clearly in how we uh, greet each other. Or even in how we, when we meet someone new. So we know in... Um, Often in greeting people, we might say in our culture, how are you doing? Right? Uh, and we'll, we'll look into some of how, you know, why this is this way. And in other cultures, it might be very different. Right? Uh, maybe I'll come back to that because I'll, I'll bring out those examples. So, uh, you know, I think in, someone said that in New Zealand... Uh, I think it was maybe it was the Maori. I, I'm not sure. Maybe someone who was here knows this better than me. I think it was like, uh, "How are you going?" might be asked. Or similarly, when you meet someone new, you might ask them, "What do you do?" <laughs> right? As if this is the key to their identity. Right? What do you do? And again, someone brought up the example of the, the Maori. When you meet someone new, they, the question would be, who are your waters? Mm, There's a little different framework, right? And this would be uh, asking, what are the significant bodies of water that you uh, live near and are connected with? And you know, I don't know if they knew that you know, 80 or 90% of your body is your waters, but maybe, you know. Anyway, so, so the doer is very, very interesting. Um, now, back up a little bit. Clearly, doing things is very important. It's very important to get things done. It's just a question, are we out of balance with this? And I, I would say yes, that we... That we are so caught in the sense of being the doer that for many of us it's hard for us to be to be without doing. That the doing can be very compulsive and it's very locked into deeper and more subtle dimensions of our identity. That's what I'm going to try to unpack some and look at it. And what I'll point to is how it's possible to move towards having our doing come more out of our being? Can I do out of a sense of presence and awareness of being? And my task in giving this talk is to have my talking come out of my sense of presence and being. And you might listen in a similar way. right? And so that's what we'll be pointing to. So you can see it's, it's actually not easy. I mean, I've I've trained and done many things in order to be able to give talks and be more present. Right? So that'll be my intention. And, and again, we'll, we'll do some exercises to explore uh, what it's like uh, towards the end before we, before we talk together. So clearly, doing is important. Right? I prepared this talk. We all do all sorts of things. Uh, Spirit Rock wouldn't be here with a lot of doing. Uh, doing is crucial, right? So it's a question of balance, right? Um, what I'll also suggest is that the doer is one of the key ways we uh, identify ourselves both in terms of identity, but also moment to moment in a more subtle way. We, 
we do things and we're locked into the doing. We're not doing it more so much with a sense of presence. And of course, I was, I was thinking about this morning as I was driving and uh, I was, you know, uh, uh, I was realizing I was waiting to uh, make a left turn at a light and someone came around the bend in a big pickup truck at a high speed and came within like about a foot of going into my, my vehicle. And then I said, maybe people should pay more attention to their doings. <laughs> I realized, okay, there, there, there's the issue of distraction and actually not actually being really connected with the doing. So, you know, there, and, and one of the way, one of the re, uh, fruits of being mindful is that we're more fully with our doing. Okay, so it's subtle, right? I'm kind of playing with a lot of different parameters of the uh, of this investigation. So it's complex and and subtle. And I I was uh, actually just had a, a memory uh, in the break. I remembered uh, reading something from Gary Snyder, the the poet and Buddhist practitioner who lives in the Sierra foothills, and he once said, "I wouldn't meditate ten hours a day. There's too much to be done." Of course, what I'm going to suggest is that we can point to doing that is a kind of meditation. That's the way we avoid the dichotomy or the polarization. So, again, a lot of different dimensions to it. One of the ways it manifests is that we have a sense that I am doing something and we have almost like this own inner voice saying, okay, do this. Move this way, do that, right? Is that familiar? It's kind of an inner, what, uh, control tower, <laughs> right? Right, and that, again, can be useful uh, in many, many ways. Uh, but again, we'll be pointing to, so to speak, to a way of um, having our being coming out of doing. So just a little bit of a preview. Um, take your finger, one finger, and rub it with another finger with a sense of, I am doing this. Okay. I'm do, I am rubbing. I am, and rub a little faster. Okay. I'm rubbing faster. Okay. A little slower. Okay. And now see if you can let the rubbing of one finger with the other come more out of a larger sense of presence. So it's still happening, but you're more present. Okay, how many could do that, so to speak? Yeah, so that's, um, that's essentially what we'll be pointing to, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll develop that in a few different ways, but that's a little bit of a preview. One of the ways that we can notice the doer is more at the cultural level that we very much, I think, in this culture, I would say that we really value doing and we don't value as much being. And this has, you know, historical roots. And I'll I'll talk about those some. But we can see that sometimes uh, in a few different examples. So we can see, and we talked about this some last time, that often our identity is so wrapped up in, in doing something so to speak, and being a doer, that when we lose our job or retire, we may lose much of our sense of identity, right? And this manifests in a lot of different ways. It manifests, I think, in among, particularly it seems to manifest in um, uh, white men who've lost their jobs, who have uh, as many of you know, a, ra- a drastically increased suicide rate in the last 10 or 20 years, right? And that the, you know, the sense of identity in doing, when that's not there, it's very disorienting and there's a lot of suffering connected with it, you know? And again, complex issues in, in terms of uh, meaningful work, but it's also something about it there's something about it in the way that we think that the doing is most important. And we can see this also in what happens to a lot of people when they so-called retire. Right? We, people, Several people told stories 
when people retire, often the sense of identity gets very confusing. And there can be disorientation. You know, maybe we can hear there are people here who are so in the so-called retirement stage. I remember there was, it was interesting. There was an article in the Chronicle a day or two ago about a, a judge who's 84, and she says, I am not contemplating retirement. <laughs> right? right? But there, there are issues there. There are issues sort of in the culture about uh, doing being most important. And it's, 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 uh, can also find it sometimes when we uh, have a day where we're not doing anything, or it could be that we're on vacation and we're not doing anything and something comes up in the mind, I need to do something. You know, anyone ha- can relate to that? You know, I've had a number of people tell me, I was on vacation, I was in this amazingly beautiful place and suddenly the thought came up, I'm not doing anything. I need to do something. You know, there's like at that moment, inability just to rest with the beauty, right? Some kind of conditioning that's there. And again, it's connected, we talked about last time, connected sometimes with our view of time. Uh, can be a sense of rushing to get things done. I've often joked that uh, we, many of us, are more interested in completing our to-do list than in awakening. Anyone relate to that? Anyone have a perpetually incomplete to-do list? Is it a source of anxiety? <laughs> right, so interesting to look at all these areas. And you can see that by these stories that there is something here, right? There's some sense of the doer. Again, a lot of it is, is cultural. Uh, some of it is, again, again, this is to uh, recognize that the doing is very important, right? But there's something that can be, I think, is out of balance in the culture, right? It's important to uh, do things. And we could make the case that our doing at the current time is out of control in terms of the earth, right? I would make that case. That, you know, there's sort of a, a doing without a sense of why we're doing it. It's just more and more production, more and more consumption. You know, we could point to an economic system that is out of balance, right? That is uh, uh, not balanced with certain long-term values. And there's just this emphasis on doing, producing, and so forth. Uh, You know, and it's related to greed. You know, I remember during an economic downturn, there was an interview with traders on Wall Street and one of them said, we have two cycles here. We have the greed cycle and the fear cycle. Right now we're in the fear cycle. Right? And I, al- I also remember uh, what's the nature of greed? It's like this, almost like I have to do this, I have to get this. I've mentioned sometimes that Diana Winston and I taught a class uh, a while ago called Greed Management. I've often mentioned that it had extremely low enrollment. (laughs) The teachers were nonetheless very enthusiastic. (laughs) But we had two teachers and five students. That's how how it was. It was not financially greatly of great benefit, but we were totally into it, so it didn't matter. And so, but one, we looked carefully at greed, you may remember, and one of the aspects of greed that we found when we looked at our own minds, when, when our own minds were greedy, was that there was no sense of consequences and often a strong sense of entitlement, right? This is for me, I deserve this, and then no sense of consequences. So I would say that doing, when it's not balanced, it gets into that territory. And I think with, with, our, with our economic, sen- uh, our economic uh, system, which again can, 
not, you know, it, I, I have friends who are economists who have been trying for years to try to have a sense of an ecologically guided economics. It's way, way far from the mainstream, right? I have friends who are trying to do that, which is very worthy, right? Very, to how can you have an economics that really has ecological balance and sustainability as an ultimate value and still, you know, have a sense of doing economics? Well, that's not there in the mainstream, right? And again, I was coming, I, I did a little research on how people greet each other and what our identities is. So we often say, how are you doing as our greeting, right? And um, that it wasn't always the way in our culture. I think in the West, people would often, or maybe in rural areas, people would just say, howdy, <laughs> right? I'm, I don't know the origins of that. Or people would say, good day. I, I lived in Germany for uh, a year in uh, a part of Germany where people's greeting was uh, Gruß Gott, which means uh, uh, I greet God. <laughs> that's how they greeted each other. That's pretty interesting, right? And, and that's, uh, uh, that was only in the more rural areas where they weren't as productive. Anyway, and um, in other cultures, people greet each other in other ways. In Tibet, uh, the greeting is by sticking out your tongue. That's how they greet each other. And it's pretty interesting looking across cultures. In parts of the Middle East, people bump noses. So they don't say, how are you doing? They bump noses. So there's a little more, we could say, a little more quality of being in the, in the greeting, right? Um, uh, in New Zealand, uh, for people who are close to you, you would rub your face together, your forehead and your nose, okay? Um, sometimes we shake hands. Some of you know uh, some origins of shaking hands is to show that you're not carrying a weapon. <laughs> That's a way to greet people. Right? So anyway, so it's, it's complex across different cultures. Um, uh, for in parts of Polynesia, when there would be a visitor, you would press your cheeks together and take a deep breath and smell the other person. <laughs> so this is taken to be friendly. Right? And, and I mean, it's, it's actually pretty, pretty deep, isn't it? I mean, anyway, so this is just, just showing, I mean, you can try this, and, but we, we, often, we often say, how are you doing? You know, and some of you who've been to South or Southeast Asia know the greeting is often a bow. Sometimes in some places it's with the understanding, I bow to the divine in you, right? That's often a greeting. And, um, and so some of the other dimensions, I, I, I talked a little bit about retirement, but there, in, a, in our culture, there's a valuing of doing, and that's connected with elders older people not being as valued, right? You're not doing anything anymore. You're not as valued. You're also not, you're not such a big consumer if you're older. I mean, personally, I don't have a need to buy much. I'm not great for the economy. The big thing I'm looking at now is to get some induction uh, stovetop heaters so I can move away from uh, natural gas and my heating. They're, the technology is there, really cool. Um, not very expensive. You know? Anyway, that's my consumption. But otherwise, uh, as one gets older, you don't consume as much very naturally. So you're of less use. You're not valued as much. And when they've done research on implicit bias, do you know implicit bias? The sense of bias towards a particular group of people. They've looked at it in terms of gender and race and age and class and so forth. Do you know what the strongest implicit bias is that they've measured? It's towards older people, negatively towards older people. That is stronger than the implicit bias around race. And that's now the race is connected with institutional power, so it has much more impact. But still, when they actually measure simply the bias, they find the bias is greater towards older people because I think it's connected with the fact that they're not doing anything often, not producing. Does that make some sense? Right? And 
And yeah, and so younger people are the ones who do. And it's also, uh, the, the, I'll just go a little bit more with the cultural dimension, but the doing is often not doing what they want to do, but being do, done what the society tells them is possible. I remember very, very clearly, I, I taught in universities and colleges for about seven years. And I remember I would often ask a question to people who were uh, near graduation, uh, you know, like in a four-year college. And I, I would ask them, do you know what you most want to do? And almost all of them would say yes. How many of you think in the next few years you'll be able to do what you most want to do? And about 20% of them raised their hand. They knew that they were going to be doing things that weren't really what they most wanted to do, what called them. And then over the years, they would forget what was calling them. Right? So this is all, this is part of it, part of it as well. And so I think this has historical roots. Um, I'm not going to go too much into them. I, I remembered a book I had read uh, by uh, the great sociologist named Max Weber. Some of you may know this. It's called uh, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Anyone read that? I said, oh, great, great. So the thesis of that book was that at a certain key point, like 16th, 17th century, um, Succeeding in the world became something, and doing things, particularly through trading, business, and so forth, went from being something that was spiritually or religiously not so cool to being something that suddenly was really great to do. In other words, to do things in the world suddenly became valued spiritually because if you succeeded, it showed that you were spiritually one of the chosen. That's That's more or less the thesis of the book. And that was... When that shift happened, that ushered in capitalism. Hmm. Anyway, there's debate about the thesis, but interesting that this shift towards spiritually sanctioned doing is connected with all of what we're talking about. Anyway, I'm not going to go so much into historical analysis, but that's part of it. It's interesting, isn't it? So that's basically to say the conditioning is thick, right? Conditioning is deep. And so what we could point to What's the, uh, what's the uh, sense of that relation of doing and being that we can imagine with the Buddha or with a more awakened quality? And it was really pointing to having our doing come out of our being, come out of our presence. And I think the quality of being mindful as we do is a very important first step. Can I be mindful when I'm washing the dishes, be present, right? Be present with the dishes. Can I bring that increasingly into my work if I'm, if I'm doing work? Some things it's harder. It's, I have found it's way harder to be present on the computer than in washing dishes, right? Because it's, so one of the things I pointed to last time is in moving toward, to have one's practice have one's doing come more out of being, it's good to have what we might call a hierarchy from easier to harder and know what's easier. So it could be easier to bring that sense of presence and awareness into doing the dishes, walking, maybe doing, you know, uh, people who do more manual work, it's easier, right? More mental work, it's harder. But even there, some things are easier. Can you have a sense of presence when you uh, talk to someone? This is something we'll explore in a moment. I have found it's, it's actually not as hard as being on the computer to try to be present when you're in a conversation. Can you do that right now? It's easier, for example, when you're being more receptive. Right now, can you be present, maybe be with your body some, and still listen to me? For most of us, that'll be way easier than being active in a conversation or being on a computer and being present. So it's good to know what's easier and what's harder and to move towards that sense of uh, uh, being present when one is 
acting and doing. And of course, in speech and communication, that sense of being present is crucial for good communication. And how much of our communication are we in our minds thinking about what we'll say when the other person finishes, right? And we know that a sense of presence is crucial for another person feeling heard, feeling empathically listened to, and that uh, we probably have that sense of presence when we're listening compassionately to another person. And so when we teach on speech, one of the core qualities that we teach is how to be more present in speaking, communicating, and so forth. And this, I have found, again, it's going to vary individually, I found it easier than um, being on the computer. But even on the computer, some things are easier than others. I have found being within and reading emails is easier than uh, composing and writing or being involved in some quite detailed task, right? That's, that's harder, but it's possible even. I have uh, one friend who is a teacher who does a lot of writing and he has got to the point where his writing can come out of a sense of presence. That's, that's more advanced practice, right? But that's possible. And, you know, I was thinking of, uh, my mom had a phrase, uh, my mother Bernice had a phrase, which she continually told me, probably from a young age. And, and I think it's related to this. She said, let your labor be your amor. And that's kind of Latin. But it was meaning let your labor is the same word as labor. Let your work be your love. Right? That's what she said. So she told me that. So I think I haven't always been there, but I think this feels pretty good. <laughs> okay. And, and so, uh, so can we have a sense of being and having our doing come out of a sense of presence, even a sense of being outside of time? Because when we look at this, time, I haven't talked much about time because I haven't had enough time. (laughs) But time will play, time plays a very large role in all of this and we can unpack that some. Uh, So can we have that sense of presence, maybe equanimity, non-reactivity? Because a lot of our doing is sometimes involves grasping or reacting in some way. So you can see this is, this is, uh, this is involved uh, I read last time quite a lot of from Chuangsa, uh, who uh, I think it's pronounced Chuangsa. Chuangsa. Uh, I was given some guidance on pronunciation. Chuangsa. How it say? Chuangsi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be Chuangsi. Is that close? It's close. <laughs> close enough. So, anyway, so this is a wonderful, you know. Uh, core teaching in uh, Strunksi's teaching is the sense of Wu Wei, which is a sense of sometimes translated as non-action. It's a, it's a very beautiful way that this quality that we're pointing to is developed, maybe more than any other tradition I know. And so you could read this as a, I brought in a few translations, and you could, could read, I'll read maybe, read, I'll read uh, a passage. I'll read maybe one, read one I, I gave last time and then some new ones. Make your will one. Don't listen with your ears. Listen with your mind. No, don't listen with your mind, but listen with your spirit. Listening stops with the ears. The mind stops with recognition. But spirit is empty and waits on all things. The way gathers in emptiness alone. Emptiness is the fasting of the mind. 
Yan Hui said, before I heard this, I was certain that I was Hui. But now that I've heard this, there is no more Hui. Can this be called emptiness? That's all there is to it. Now I tell you, you may go and play in his birdcage, but never be moved by fame. If he listens, then sing. If not, keep still. It is easy to keep from walking. The hard thing is to walk without touching the ground. Okay. Is that clear? <laughs> okay. And you remember the, another story was the story of the woodcarver who was uh, asked to carve um, an object. And the woodcarver spent seven days getting mind and body and heart ready. And he said, after seven days, I no longer had a sense of anything. I went to the forest, found the tree, and everything appeared before me. And I worked, and there was no sense of doing. And I came up with the perfect uh, uh, carving. People who see it said, this is so miraculous, it must be the work of spirits. <laughs> right? And so there was this way that the uh, person, uh, the woodcarver, in this case, disciplined himself to be able to, to carve. So I wanted to do a brief exercise. Um, um, so find someone next to you right now. We'll do, we'll do a few exercises. Uh, find someone next to you and sit in proximity to the person. Okay? And it's okay to have a group of three if you need. So introduce yourself. Okay, so we'll do, well, I think we'll do two exercises and then we'll, then we'll talk together. And these are exercises that can give you a sense of how to practice. Because one of the ways to practice, to develop the sense of your doing coming out of being or your doing coming out of presence and awareness involves uh, techniques that I learned from Tibetan tradition in which they basically establish themselves in awareness have it be pretty stable, and then conduct an activity. And if they get a little bit lost in the activity, you come back to establishing yourself in presence. And this is, I learned, this is from the Bon Tibetan tradition. It's called mixing practice. You mix awakened awareness, in this case, with your activity. Right? And it's a very simple idea and that can be the basis for what we do in daily life. In other words, because you can recenter yourself in one minute. You're at work. You're a little. You're, you're caught in the doing. You want to come back, establish yourself in awareness and presence for a minute or two minutes or five minutes, and then conduct your activity as best you can with that sense of presence. Very simple idea, right? And we'll do it. So first, now, do what helps you to have a sense of presence. might be meditating, being with the breath. What helps you be present right now? And do that, so to speak. And now keeping the sense of presence, stand up. But let your awareness be there every moment as you stand up. And now if you can, keeping the sense of presence, raise your arms a little bit. Keeping a sense of presence, let them down. It's a little awkward now, but I could also say, walk around in a circle. So maybe turn, not walking right now, but turn to your left. Keeping a sense of presence, turn to your right. Keeping a sense of presence, sit back down. So the principle, very simple. Keep, still keep that sense of presence now. Principle, very simple. Establish yourself in presence and then conduct an activity with a sense of staying present. Right? You can do that right before you do the dishes. Very simple, not hard. How many people found that wasn't hard? Could do it pretty easily. 
we always say, what's hard is not a sense of presence or awareness. What's hard is remembering to be present. <laughs> so put it on your hand. Be, pre- be present. R- write on your hand, be present, or have a little you know, jewelry around your wrist that reminds you of it, or put it in your refrigerator, okay? So second activity, come back and let's take another minute to be present. Whatever way that works for you. And now, keeping a sense of presence, turn to the person next to you and we'll be having a little bit of a conversation. You can face the person, still keeping a sense of presence. And the content is, have a sense of presence and talk about what your plans are for the afternoon. can do it one at a time, just, just for a minute, each person, and keeping a sense of presence as you talk. And if it's too personal, you can make up something else. <laughs> okay, so you can go on and start right now. Keep that sense of presence. And make sure both people have had a chance to speak and take another 30 seconds. So finish up, see if you can still keep that sense of presence. And I'll just finish with uh, a short reading, then we can talk together some. This is from uh, the writer uh, James Fadiman, closing, little closing quotation. I hope whatever you were doing You're stopping now and then and not doing it at all. Okay. The end. (laughs) Okay, so it can take some time. Any could talk about what you experienced with the exercise or anything that was said, you know, anything that was said that we explored. So this, again, is uh, looking at the conditioning around... One manifestation of what I've called a thick self, the, the doer, very very strong cultural dimensions to this. And then uh, how, to, how to practice to move towards having one's doing come more out of presence and being. Okay, any reflections, questions, comments? Yeah, and, and we'll use the microphone. So we have some microphone runners. You can wait till the microphone shows up. We have, uh, you know, do we have a second microphone? Not sure. Okay. Thank you very much, Donald. This is a wonderful talk. Um, You know, you talked about retirement. And 
I was in my mid-60s, and I didn't have the option to retire. I was retired. Well. And I walked away, and I said, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I got a job, which was so totally different than what I had been doing for the last 30 years. And I worked for a nonprofit at Muir Woods. I had been in the corporate world. Yeah. I was a middle manager. And I worked at Muir Woods. Yeah. At the visitor center. I loved it for 10 years. Yeah. And I loved it. I met people from every walk of the earth, speaking every different language that you could possibly imagine. And then finally, I got to the point at Muir Woods, I said, I don't think I want to do this much anymore. Yeah. I don't want to drive over here. So I stopped. Yeah. And then I went back and to my own personal life and started just doing photographs and whatever crossed my mind. Yeah. So it was just a wonderful experience. Now, I have another question. What's the difference between a doer and a fixer? Yeah. Is there any difference? Yeah, yeah. First of all, let me say a very interesting story that I'm imagining that uh, uh, working at Muir Woods probably had more of that sense of presence, right, than with your previous work, right? And it was coming more out of your heart choice. Uh, and again, there's just what was coming to mind uh, what, uh, when you say, what's the difference between a, was a doer and a fixer? Probably a fixer is a particularly fixed sense, uh, kind of doer. Equip <laughs> my, my quick response. I was also thinking of, uh, I remember reading, uh, I think it was a book, it was called Stone Age Economics. And the thesis of it was that in previous times, the amount of work that people had to do was about 10 hours a week. They had much more time for culture. It's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of complexities there. But I think that's that the amount of work that people do is in this, you know, across the world now, is extreme compared to all of human history. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Please. Yes. I was wondering what are a couple of your favorite techniques for thinning yourself? For thinning the self, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, again, it, it's complementary to noticing where one's thick, right? It's the complementary to that. And so it, I think what we just, uh, it, it's, I think it could, I'll mention maybe three that come to mind. One of them would be noticing where you're already in a kind of a flow type experience and being aware that that's happening and appreciating it and actually uh, in the moment knowing that that's happening. So, you know, if someone's an artist or something, you might be in that kind of flow experience without much sense of self a lot, but maybe to appreciate that more. So to see whatever the kind, whatever kind of experiences are that for you that are more like a flow without much sense of self, maybe recognize them more. And and uh, try to uh, even yeah be conscious that they're happening and that can help them maybe last longer even that's one. Uh, a second would be uh, probably similar to uh, what we just did, which would be deliberately uh, trying to with activities where it can work most easily, trying to move to that thinned out sense of self. So. Again, the choice of going to simpler activities first, the ones that are easier, is very crucial. Not to try the hardest things first, but to, you know, like could be walking, uh, listening to a conversation where you don't have to talk so much, maybe being in the audience, maybe a little bit like right now. And then I think meditatively trying to just let the flow of experience occur and watch where there's a sense of the fixing the control, because everything we're describing you can see in meditation as well. Yeah. So trying to be with that flow of experience, just have that intention at the beginning of meditation. I'm just going to let things happen without 
you know, as much as possible without commentary or trying to say, oh, that, I like that one, I don't like that one. So to be with the flow of experience in meditation can give a model as well. Again, there are a lot of complexities to this and there are some situations maybe where there's a certain amount of pain where we, you know, we wouldn't always do that in the same way. Thanks. Yeah, please. I'm, that is helpful to me, the, the flowing description. But I was wondering, I'm not sure that I know what presence or being is. Yeah. Is it um, to be aware of your body enough and and to have your mind focused in some way yeah. on what you're doing and not not going off? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It's an important question. Uh, I think we could talk about a kind of a, a continuum of presence, right? Could, you know, the, the different, different aspects of it. I think our basic mindfulness practice is developing more sense of presence. So here we would be mindful and we'd be focused on a particular area of experience. So as I'm walking, I'm mindful of my walking. There's a sense of being present. I'm not lost in thought, but I'm still focused. I have, you know, uh, I'm mindful of this. And so then there could be a sense of presence which doesn't have as much that division between the mindful knower and the focus, where we could just be more present, letting whatever things happen without focusing on one thing. So presence, so I think there's a kind of continuum which moves from being present with a focus, which is important sometimes. Uh, One of the definitions of mindfulness is knowing and knowing that you're knowing. Right? That's where the sense of presence comes in. I know what's happening right now. I'm not totally on automatic. And that, so, so there's that continuum from a sense of I'm present, but I'm focused on this. And I think that continuum would go towards more of a sense like I'm totally present, I'm with everything, but I'm, I'm just kind of more with a, almost like a global sense of awareness. So I think, I think it's, uh, there, there are gradations of awareness and presence. Probably if we were specific, we probably could unpack three or four, mm-hmm. you know. You know, I know, I know some people talk about a kind of continuum of, of awareness. Uh, it's something like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, so we have one here and one up front. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm in that retirement place too. I'll be retiring in the fall. And yeah. what I notice that fits here and fits in general with, with sometimes a presence is that I'm having a sense of fear. And it's not a fear of letting go of identity. Yeah. It's not that fear. It's more more time to actually be in presence. So in other words, the my ego, whatever, is fighting, you know, a little bit of yeah. no no excuse, you know, it's uh, <laughs> no excuse not to do more of what actually is nurturing and yet yeah. sometimes it's difficult. To that's do a, that's a great, great observation really that, that, that um, yeah, uh, not having something to do has its scary aspects. I mean, we may not like what we do, but we're clearly doing it. <laughs> and, you know, existential, I mean, it can be existential issues, but, you know, often we're just, it's, uh, it's not, the, you know, it's like, this is what I'm doing. And now when you uh, are not doing that any longer as work, then the question comes up, I've always complained about not being able to do what I most deeply want. Now I have the chance. Uh-oh. Exactly. <laughs> Something like that, right? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating. And so, uh, and we'll probably find ourselves getting into habits of doing in ways that are not so meaningful simply for the sake of filling up the time and space. And that I don't want to do. Right. How many of us can relate to that? Even on our days off, right? Right. And so that would be what would be predicted by knowing how the conditioning works. And so you want to look out for that. 
and and it's not easy, right? Because I, I think even you know, even though it might not be uh, a gross level of identity, there's subtle dimensions of identity that come in here, right? And so you'll notice layer upon layer, right? So maybe we, uh, I think we just have time maybe for one more. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, what I thought of when I was doing the um, the exercise and the meditation is I tend to fall off my spiritual horse and have a thick sense of self yeah. when I think I don't have enough. Yeah. Whether it's enough time, money, friends, love, whatever, I don't yeah. have enough. And um, one of the ways I thin out that thick self is I say over and over to myself, probably at least 20 times a day, just for today, I have all that I need so mm. I can relax in it yeah. and be grateful and humble. Yeah. And that brings me back to, gosh, the sky is now blue and the sun is out. It wasn't yeah. when I walked in, you know, and, and just kind of slow down and enjoy the day um, because that, that sense of I don't have enough can really rule my day if I yeah. had it. Yeah, very much related. So great. Thank you for sharing that. How many have something like that, that in some way that you come back to some more balance, right? Yeah, that'd be, if we had time, it would be great just to share all these because there, there probably is a lot of collective wisdom in the room. But that sense of when I notice myself getting a little bit caught or stuck or into the thick self, what internal adjustments are helpful? I'm hearing that from you. And to know, you know, to have, have those in your toolbox, so to speak. And to know what to do. Gratitude is very helpful. You know, uh, appreciation. Um, you know, if we, if we think that I, I don't have enough or I'm not doing enough, it, it's a hard one, right? It's a hard one. I was thinking, maybe I'll close with this. Um, there's a lot in Trangse. <laughs> Trangse. Yeah. There's a lot there's a lot here about learning to <laughs> Okay. I thought I had it together last week, but not so. Um uh, there there's an interesting sense of uh learning how to have the present moment be enough, not need to do anything. And I was thinking of uh one passage from, from this book. <laughs> and also I was thinking, I, I have a friend who is a monk. He's 77 now. He's a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton was a monk. His name is uh, Brother Paul Quinon. And he just wrote a memoir. And the title of it was, In Praise of the Useless Life. And you'll have to read the book to know what he fully means by it, but it's really getting at the sense of seeing from the outward standards, seeing from the perspective of the outward standards of doing. It sure seems like he's had a life in the monastery because he entered when he was like 20, 50 plus years in the monastery. It sure would seem outwardly that he hasn't done so much, although he's been, you know, a lot of contemplative practice, he has helped uh, put together the uh, uh, fruit bread and cheese and chocolate that the monastery sends out to the world to make money. So he has done some of that. But a lot of it would be called, according to outward standards of doing, useless. And so he wrote a book on this. And then we also find it with... Chuanzi. Uh, That's good. It's close. Okay. This is... Uh, Hui Tui said to Shuangse, okay, all your teaching is centered on what has no use. Mm, that's, that's deep. <laughs> Let's see if I can unpack that. I felt a little hesitant just to end with that. <laughs> if you have no appreciation of what has no use, you cannot begin to talk about what can be used. Hmm. 
The earth, for example, is broad and vast, but of all this expanse, a person only uses a few inches upon which that person is standing. Now suppose you suddenly take away all that the person is not using. All around the feet of the person is a gulf, and the person stands in the void with nowhere solid except right under each foot. How long will he be able to use what he is using? Hui Su said, it would cease to serve any purpose. Shuangse concludes, this shows the absolute necessity of what has no use. Okay, so I think maybe we're opening another area, but <laughs> but the, I think the point is to, the main point is to investigate all of this, look for the doer, play with the paradox of doing that well, <laughs> looking for the, the doer, but mostly uh, look for the doer when it seems thick, investigate it, and then see if these practices resonate with you, where you, very simple practice, where you let your doing come more out of being by establishing yourself in some kind of presence, awareness, being, whatever language you use, and then letting your doing come out of that. First with simple things and then with more difficult things. So we'll close just by set your intention for how you might take anything that was helpful from the morning and bring it into your life. Let me close by inviting the benefits of our morning, of our practice generally to be there for us, to be there for those in our lives, particularly those in need. And then more generally, we offer the benefits to all beings, which includes us. So thank you. I appreciate the exploration together. So thank you.